Hey, uh, good to be with you guys again. And um, man, I, I felt like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm usually a little bit more uh, planned out, calculated. I like to, I'm a spreadsheet guy, so if everything can fit in rows and columns, it works really good for me. And, uh, and for these two weeks, the invitation was just do whatever you want. Uh, get up and, you know, whatever's on your heart. And, uh, and, and so uh, this is one of those, if, if someone threw me a Bible and said, hey, you have to preach in five minutes, this is probably where I would go. Uh, these are the scriptures I would jump to, and, and this is uh, how I would uh, run into it. Now, last week we talked about uh, who we are in Christ and what it means to be connected to him, but we also talked about the fruit that comes out of that connection and, uh, and, and what comes out of our lives because we're connected to Christ and we are living in Christ and he's living through us and the fruit that bears. And today I want to talk about that fruit, uh, what it means uh, to, to live as disciples, but not just that because that's not the end of the invitation, uh, but to be disciple makers. Uh, I want to start this way. Uh, if I say 1970s college basketball, what name comes to mind? Give you a four-letter clue, UCLA. Some of you would go to John Wooden, right? Now, in 27 seasons at UCLA, he coached before that. My wife would like me to mention he was a Purdue alum, uh, but... Uh, uh, but but in, in 27 seasons coaching at UCLA, he went 620 wins with 147 losses. That's an 80% winning career over his time at UCLA. It gets better than that if you even go back to where he coached before then. In his last 12 seasons as the coach at UCLA, he won 10 national championships. That's what we would call a dynasty, right? Uh, he was a six-time NCAA Coach of the Year. He was the first person in the NCAA Hall of Fame as a player and as a coach. And this is one of the greatest coaches uh, in college history. And, and think about it this way, if you've got any high school athletes going off into college or you've watched this happen year after year as college programs recruit high schoolers, if you were a high school basketball player in the 60s and 70s, you wanted to play for Coach Wooden. He was the best. He coached the best. He sent players to the NBA who were the best. Uh, he was one of those guys that you wanted when you were 18. Uh, you wanted to invest your next four years with John Wood. And he produced uh, more than any other coach. He trained and equipped more than anyone else. And one of my favorite things about John Wooden was this, is all of the hype of moving across uh, the country to land in uh, Los Angeles, to go to the University of California in Los Angeles, and you show up to that first day of practice, and you, uh, right, you got the locker room and all the, uh, the, 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 the swag everywhere and the signs everywhere, and you walk in to your first day of practice, and in the basketball court, there was a ring of seats, some of you know this, that went around center court. And John Wooden spent the first day of the most elite program in college basketball training his players on how to put on their socks and tie their shoes. Not rebounding drills, not shooting drills, not passing, uh, not defensive work, none of those kind of things. It wasn't even a weight room day. It was sitting in a folding chair and learning how to put on your socks and how to tie your shoes. Now, some of you that are, uh, we'll say, more mature than I am, 
uh, would remember that socks didn't always have a L and an R to, you know, inform those of us that aren't smart enough to know which sock goes on the right foot that were, you know, the $18 a pair crafted to your foot kind of deal. Uh, th these were a little bit more rugged. And if you didn't put your socks on right, uh, especially around the pinky toe, there's blistering that happens. If you tie your shoes too tight, you could mess with your ankles too loose, and you could mess more stuff up. And the idea with John Wooden was this, is if we don't start with the absolute fundamentals, and mind you, in his eyes, that wasn't shooting, passing, rebounding, or defense. In his eyes, if you're out of the season because you've got a toe blister, because you put your socks on wrong, we can't win championships, right? And then the very first day gets everything down to these absolute fundamentals. There are some practices for us in our Christian life that we ought, too often, where we know the information, we know what we're supposed to do, and some of us have been around the fundamentals so long we forget that we're still supposed to practice them, and we often neglect because we've developed bad habits. Some of us, it's because we've gotten used to ignoring fundamental practices of faith. Some of us were suffering because we neglect some regular fundamental practices. But today I want to talk to us and bring us back to what I think is one of those first practice moments where we sit in our chair and learn how to put on our socks and shoes. Now, I'm not uh, preaching uh, to a room full of people who I'm expecting don't know the information. I'm just assuming you're like me, and it's easy just to sometimes not do it. Some of you are like me, you grew up in church, Sunday school, sermons, youth groups, small groups. Most of the discipleship I had growing up was heavy on informational transaction, which I have greatly valued. I even went on and got two more degrees after high school in that information to know the Bible. I love that. However, when I watched Jesus equip his disciples, it was so much more than just transferring information. I wonder if because we've overlooked Jesus' foundation that maybe we've developed bad habits or expectations. I've caught myself in times not fully in the game because I've got blisters on my feet because I'm not practicing the fundamentals. I'm not doing the basics. I look around at the people around me and don't know who I'm pouring myself into. Uh, sometimes I look around and say, man, all this stuff, all the grace that God's given me, all the information uh, that I know, uh, everything I've experienced in my Christian walk and pre-Christian walk. And sometimes I can look around and I can't come up with a single name of who I'm pouring that into. And those blisters start to hold us back from being in the game God's called us to be. Uh, maybe we'll say it this way, it holds us back from bearing the fruit uh, that we're supposed to be bearing. This foundation that I want us to look at is disciple making. Now I'm not saying it's the top one or the number one, I'm not even bothering to prioritize. I'm just saying for me it's a foundational one that over and over it's easy for me to evaluate. Am I bearing fruit or aren't I? And it depends on do I have names of people I'm meeting with or don't I? Some of you are living this out and the fruit from your life shows it. And Moraine Valley's been better because of it. Some of you are getting some of this, but you're missing a lot of it. And some of you will be hearing Jesus' invitation and commission today for the first time in a new way. The reality is, like Eugene Peterson reminds us, is that none of us are experts in the Jesus-following way. We're all still learning. We're all still showing up to those first days of practice, and we've always got to come back to and be reminded of. 
these fundamental practices. I want to invite you to join me in Jesus' teaching as we look at what God invites and commissions us to do in this new life we have in Christ. Jesus first invites these young guys to be his disciples, but foundational to their discipleship is actually becoming disciple makers. Uh, This isn't uh, something that's reserved for the spiritually elite or the spiritually gifted. This is expected out of God's people that if you are in Christ, that you will bear much fruit. Jesus' first invitation to his first disciples, don't let it get lost on you, these were blue-collar fishermen, was this. In Mark, or sorry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, Jesus invites them with this. Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Do you remember that one? All right, we've passed Sunday school so far. We're doing okay, right? Literally, it could be read this way. Come after me, and I will make you a fisherman of mankind, or I will make you a fisherman of people. I want us to look at this invitation uh, to discipleship in three different parts. One is the invitation to come follow me. We can't follow Jesus and pursue our own desires at the same time, right? Can't get what you want and get what God wants unless what you want is what God wants. But so often we spend our time trying to convince God to want what we want, right? And he doesn't say, hey, hold up, I'm trying to follow you. He says, no, 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 you need to come and follow me. So we have to be willing to leave where we are We have to be willing to drop what we're working on. We have to be willing to move what we're working towards. We have to be thinking about what we care so deeply about, and we have to submit and surrender all that so that we can follow Jesus. To go to the places he goes, to the people that he goes to, to the situations that he walks into, and into the kinds of neighborhoods and homes that Jesus finds himself going into. Following Jesus requires letting go of yourself, your preferences, and your desires. It's choosing to confidently trust Jesus rather than living by your own certainty. And I'd like to say, hi, my name's Don, and I'm a control freak. I like it when it goes my way, according to my plan and the path that I've set before me, and everyone just says, Don, whatever you say, that's going to be great. But Jesus' first invitation was to leave all of that and surrender to him. It's choosing to confidently trust Jesus. If you are still following your own self, would you take a step of faith and follow after him? Some of us have started to follow Jesus but haven't moved in a while. Would you catch up, stretch your legs, trust in him and his calling and his leading on your life? You can't stay where you are and follow to where he's going. The second thing is he says this, and it's the verb in there, and we can skip past it, but he also says, I'm going to make you, Uh, which almost implies that we've got the right material, but it's not pointed in the right direction, that he's going to form something in us, that, uh, that, that, that there's things that are already here that aren't moving in the direction he's moving in. So he says, could I take you and could I form you? Could I shape you? Could I make you? Could I create something in you? You'll remember this language all the way back in the first chapter of the book, Genesis chapter 1. God makes mankind in their own image. In in chapter 2, God says it's not good for man to be alone, so he makes 
this counterpartner from the side of the man that he already created. He's a God of making and creating. In the same way that God formed us from the dirt in the beginning, some of you, if you looked at your own testimony, would be able to say he's still able to form us out of the dirt that we come to him as. He's still breathing life into our dead, dry bones, just like he showed Ezekiel and creating new life in us. I want us to see that God is still wanting to make us or form us for his purposes. Some of us could get back on the chopping block so God can use some sandpaper and chisel some things. The word he uses here for to make is this Greek word, poieo, and it means this. It's used for the creative activity of God. This word is used when God starts shaping and creating and molding and making. If any of you are into arts or crafts or uh, or building or construction, creating things is created into who we are because we're made in the image of the creator. And God starts crafting. When Paul starts his letter, uh, starts Ephesians chapter 2, he starts where we start. He says, hey, we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, that's easy to gloss over, but if you take a minute to go back and remember how true that was. So he starts where we start, but he continues and he unfolds our testimony. He says, but because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us, right? Made us alive. It's the same root word. It means to make alive together with Christ, even we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And then in verse 10, he says, for we are God's workmanship, our handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Again, don't want to bore you with the Greek, but it's really important because it all goes back to this idea that God is continually making something in us. That he's still crafting stuff in us. That he's still molding things in us. The, uh, one of my uh, Bible college professors uh, was an Old Testament professor that I had. I got terrible grades in this class, but I learned the most in it. Do with that whatever you want to. But I remember watching him uh, sit through sermons at, at church on Sunday. And mind you, uh, not always the most biblically uh, thick uh, theology. And, and I would watch this guy who had three master's degrees and two PhDs sit there and take notes when it was senior day and the seniors in high school were preaching the sermons and you've got this guy with all these degrees and accolades and all these things just taking notes and learning. And, and I remember thinking, I asked him, he's 61 at the time, 62, like what more do you have to learn, let alone from schlubs like us? right? His reminder was this. He's like, I've learned to love the word and be shaped by it no matter whose mouth it comes out of. There's a humility there that some of us forget, and and there's a vulnerability there to say, this isn't the finished product. There's some making and molding and shaping that still needs to be done in my life, and Jesus' invitation is, if we go back to him, he'll keep doing it. Whether you're 18 and just came to Christ or whether you're 67 and you've been walking with him for for decades, it's this idea that God has still got molding and shaping. We aren't the finished product. He uses resurrection language in that moment. He creates us into a new life. 
We weren't saved by good works, but when we were saved, God resurrected the death in us into a new life. And Paul says a key purpose of that resurrected life is to do good works. There's stuff planned for us with this new life. Uh, Maybe it looks like this. It seems like God's already picked out and prepared the good works that he wants us to do. Now back up. That's Paul talking decades after Jesus. Back up to Jesus' original invitation of these 12 disciples who would go on to change literally the course of history. As Jesus continues, he will spend his life training his disciples on the work that he's preparing them to do. It's helpful to go back and look at what was he actually training them for. Maybe it helps us to know, have we been sitting in that classroom? Or have we been taking semesters off for quite some time? The last thing he says, and it's kind of the direction of what he wants to make in them, he says, right, come follow me and I will make you fishermen of people, fishers of men. Here is what I love about this invitation. He's telling these ordinary, hardworking young men that he's going to take what they're good at, what they already understand, and shape all of that towards people, right? I don't know what he would say to the bricklayers and and construction guys, those who work in concrete or those in business or teaching. I'm not sure what he would say to all of them, but to these fishermen, right? So you got to translate it to what you know. He says, I'm going to take you and what you already know, what you're already good at, and we're going to take all of that, but we're going to focus it on people. To your neighbors, to the people you happen upon at Jewel. We're going to take it to the people that work at your kids' schools and the families that you're attached to. We're going to take all of that, and we're actually going to focus it not on things or yourself, but to your neighbors and the people around you, the fishermen. He's telling them to use what they know and to focus it on people. But it's not just about being nice to other people. I hope that's a part of it. It's about helping to bring them out of where they are and bringing them in. I like this quote from Tony Evans. If we get to hang around longer than this Sunday, you'll know I like some Tony Evans. And he says this quote, Jesus calls us to be fishermen, but we are too often satisfied with being keepers of the aquarium. (laughs) And what he's prophetically prouding in us is this, is in an aquarium, you don't have to deal with the messiness of the wild. They're already caught. We just got a fish tank at the Kaufman house. There's a lot of work I don't have to do. There's a lot of waiting I don't have to do. I don't have to figure it out. They're there. We bought them. We just got to feed them and hope they don't die, right? (laughs) And in this, what we're reminded in the aquarium, it's easy to become confident experts about what we can see with certainty rather than being these missionary adventurers who are out living by faith. What Tony Evans is reminding and awaking in us is, as we become accustomed to admiring the aquarium instead of longing for the adventures of being out fishing for men. Jesus' call is to leave your comfort and your certainty, submit yourself to whatever he wants to form in you and out of what he's doing in you to focus yourself and your efforts towards other people. At Jesus' invitation, Andrew and his brother Peter immediately left everything and accepted that invitation and they followed after him. Then he goes on and finds James and John and invites them and they leave everything and everyone to follow Jesus. I wonder if some of the spiritual struggles in my own Christian life can come back to this invitation. Maybe we are willing to follow Jesus so long as we get to keep a pivot foot 
in places of control and comfort. Right? Meaning like this foot, I'm going to keep this where I want. I'll, I'll go this far. Right? But I can't move this one because I'm comfortable here. God, if you call me to go here, I'm good, but I, I, I don't want to leave here. And it's really hard to follow Jesus as he travels around if we're not willing to move that foot. I don't want to leave or change or do anything new, but I'm also trying to follow him so he can make me a fisher of people. Is it the same for you? Maybe what's holding us back from experiencing what our Christian life was created for is we just won't pick up our pivot foot. But it's hard to follow somebody if we're only moving one step. This is the invitation they accepted to be his disciples, and they spend a lot of time doing exactly what Jesus said he would do. They follow after him. He created something in them, messing with their perspectives, their per, sorry, messing with their perspectives, their preconceived notions, how they viewed all kinds of people, how they approached, encountered, and lived in the presence of God. And all of that so they would play a part in bringing people to an encounter with God. After the pain of Good Friday, the hope of Resurrection Sunday, and weeks of walking with the resurrected Jesus, Jesus flips his invitation into a commission. Because we've accepted his invitation to follow, what do we do? Right? What comes next? How does this get lived out? What does it look like? Now, on a weekend like Memorial Day, I'll say my dad's dad and my stepdad's dad were both Navy guys. My grandpa served during World War II. Uh, in this, what we find, if you've ever seen the commissioning of a Navy ship, any Navy guys in the room? Two. All right, there we are. We'll talk about the Marines later, Pat. All right. Don't want to. After a ship has been built, they take it out and it does a, a host of tests to make sure that it's actually ready. You get it? That it's tested. Uh, the ship is then given a name and an identity that sets it apart from everything else, but also uh, highlights it as something that's going to be used for a specific purpose. It's commissioned then into active duty, meaning it's being placed to serve and do what it was created to do. So as Jesus gives us our commission, put yourselves in that place. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus stands before those who have responded to his invitation to follow him. He's made them into fishermen of people. They are disciple makers. They have been made, as he said he would do. They've been tested. They've been given a new identity. And now he will commission them into the active duty and to use everything they've been given to do exactly what he's called them to do. And it's not just for him or these guys that he does it for. It's for us. It's for all of us who have accepted that invitation to come follow him so he can make in us uh, to go use who we are and what we've got to fish for people. He, he's, after we follow that invitation, there is that commission that, that we've been tested in our faith and in our walk. We've been given a new identity. We've been made into something for a purpose. I want us to look at what that is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It says, Jesus came to them and said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Listen, if God shows up and says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, so you want to follow what's coming next, right? After he brings all 
the crowd's attention to that moment, here's what he says next. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always till the end of the age. So what's our commission? First thing, it says we need to leave in order to go. You've got to lift up that pivot foot. You've got to get away from what's comfortable. Now, I love, often in Scripture, uh, you've got the demon-possessed man that was healed, and he says, Lord, I want to follow you. And he says, no, you need to stay here. Which doesn't mean he's not following. It just means he's being sent back to the community that he was from. Some of us, most of us, have that kind of calling. But there was others who Jesus said, I want you to come, and others who said, Lord, can we follow? And they tagged along, and they joined in, and they were a part of it. It doesn't matter whether you go back to the normal or you go somewhere you've never been. If you're sent there by the Lord, that's where you're supposed to be. There's something powerful and necessary about sitting at the feet in the presence of Jesus. There is something equally as powerful and necessary about obeying his commission to go from the places and people where we are the most comfortable to the people and places that he's prepared for us to go. He says, go therefore. If you've done a good Bible study, you know every time you read the word therefore, you go back and find out what it's. There it is. It follows the line of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who's just died for the sins of the world to forgive that who's rise to walk and invited us into a hope that we could have never imagined. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, go. We can't follow Jesus if we're unwilling to move. Jesus may not call you to leave your neighborhood, but he will send you back into your neighborhood. He may never ask you to change the setting of your life, but he will send you into your familiar world with a new calling to be a missionary to the people around you. The second part of his commission is what happens when we follow Jesus is we're supposed to disciple the diversity around us, right? In a time where people view themselves as deities and are moving everything just to be around people like them who look like us, act like us, vote like us, believe like us, Jesus is commissioning us forward and he says, go make disciples of all nations, not just yours. To all the people who aren't like you, to the people who have radically different life experiences and perspectives, to the ones who you've grown up disagreeing with the most, it's to them that you're to go make disciples because guess what they need? The same thing you need, Jesus. And his call is, as he's making us, is to take off the blinders that hold us back from approaching the neighbor next door or sometimes people in our own families, let alone the world around us, to make disciples of all of them. His first move is to remove the restrictor plate on what uh, the expert in the law is Jesus. Well, who's my neighbor? And all of a sudden, all that gets taken away, and the commission doesn't leave us wondering. In fact, it specifically points us at everyone without exclusion. 
Don't just remember the action and forget the audience. We can't take a narrow definition of discipleship here. We have to take all that Jesus intended, right? He said, go make disciples. Uh, Not just information. Discipleship isn't just to know, but it's to form our minds and our thinking. You know what I'm saying? Not just to download information so we can regurgitate it later, but to actually shape and mold that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, souls, minds, and our strength, that we submit our thinking and the way that we think that it's not just downloading information, it's submitting and putting our brains up on the altar and saying, God, this is yours. Have your way. It's not just about experiences. Discipleship isn't just about doing, but it is to form our behavior. That what I do and how I do it, how I live and whom I live around, that all of that is submitted to discipleship. That every aspect of who we are gets put up on the altar and says, Lord, would you shape that in me? Would you help me not just download and remember your words, but would you help me learn your methods? Would you help me live after your model? You get it? There are so many discipleship books, programs, methods, models, but we've got a textbook. His name's Jesus. Some of us will skip all of that in Amazon and find some other resource instead of opening up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and discovering who was the Messiah. How did he do it? To whom did he do it around? How did he stretch the people following him? How did he stretch the people that thought they had it all figured out? His message, it's about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did in the places where we live and where we work and where we play to whomever is around us. Some of us need reminded, I know I often do, that Jesus didn't just call us to discipleship. Jesus commissioned us for disciple making. It doesn't stop at who we are. It moves through who we are so that we are helping other people be. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That one kicks me in the throat a couple times a week. It's not that we have options. It's not uh, for those whom we lay hands on and send off to foreign countries to unreached people groups. It's to those of us who walk in this building weekly and go back to the unreached people group called our neighborhood and our families and our workplaces. I've had moments of repenting that God would ever need to raise up a missionary in India to send it to my neighborhood because I wasn't doing the work. Not just to hope people get saved, but to help form people's lives into the same Christ-likeness that our own lives are being formed into as we followed Christ. And he's called us into our ever-diverse neighborhoods to make disciples. The third part of this is this. After he's called us to come and follow him, or sorry, to come uh, and make disciples of all nations, or go make disciples of all nations, he moves into this and baptize people into their new identity. In Jesus' commission, he gives us an action, a moment to disciple people through, but he also attaches it to the identity and the fullness of the triune God. In Matthew 28, 19, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Baptize is, trans, is a transliteration. Now, I know I'm talking to a well-pastored congregation, so I don't want to bore you. 
But it's a transliteration, which means we've created an English word that just sounds like the original word. In this case, it's Greek. If you look at what it was originally culturally used at this time, this Greek word baptizo, right? It's used not just in the Bible, but in culture at large in that same time. It's used in philosophy when, uh, or sorry, in military when someone uh, was writing about a ship rammed into an enemy ship and it was baptized or it was sunk. Someone who was baptized in debt or buried in it. Mark describes the ritual cleanliness practices of the Pharisees in chapter 7, verse 4. It says, when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they baptize or wash their hands. Get it? And they observe many other traditions, such as the baptizing or washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. In Greek, this word is literally translated to dip or to plunge, to sink or to immerse. Thought this was interesting. The first time that we historically find this word baptizo uh, is in an ancient pickle recipe. <laughs> Prophetically, dipping cucumbers into the brine so that they come out something different than what they went in because they were fully submerged. Spiritual pickles. <laughs> but you get the image, right? This idea that we would be fully immersed, fully submerged, fully all in, that every part of us goes down into it, but we come back out of it. But what's most important isn't the action, it's to whom the action belongs. The dunking alone isn't important. What's important is what or to whom we're being immersed in. We live in a culture where we're immersed in a lot of things. It's helpful for us as Jesus' disciples to be reminded what we are immersed in is the Father, and it's the Son, and it's the Holy Spirit. The name is not just what people are to call you, it's the word pointing to the identity. The name carries the person's character, integrity, reputation, and representation. It's about belonging. Literally, we are immersed into the identity of the fullness of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the stuff in me that gets put to death is put to death in him, but it also comes to life out of him. That on, that's why Paul says, right, I've been buried with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, crucified with Christ. And this idea that we're buried and we rise to walk in this new life is because of whom we're immersed in. This is Jesus' method of how we are to publicly profess our faith. Baptism is also how we identify ourselves with Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, dying to sin, buried with Christ, rise to walk a new life with him. Jesus' commission for a going discipleship is not for it to be a private or ambiguous walk, but that it's a publicly pointed at the identity of the good news of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Can I invite those of you who are following Jesus but haven't been baptized to take an important step of faith and obedience by being baptized, fully immersed, fully submerged into the name, the reputation, the character, their identity, the covering, the blessing, the grace, and the love, and the mercy, and the forgiveness of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see why it's so powerful and why Jesus made sure he commissioned us to do it. The last thing he says 
is that we're also to coach people into Christ-likeness. Now, I know that's not the language we're used to, but we have an education system and style that focuses on the classroom and lecture-style learning, and Jesus certainly did some of that, but that was not the typical teaching style of the rabbis, and as we watch Jesus, that's not always what he did. Teaching them to learn, right? Teaching them to uh, 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 repeat all that I've commanded you. He says this in Matthew chapter 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This idea that, uh, or obey, maybe another word that we use. Teaching here is about information and abilities. You observe, you obey, you keep the ideas that your life retains, but it also metabolizes the teachings of Jesus. We don't just hear the story of the Good Samaritan, we become part of that story and we live it out as we go, that we observe it, we hold it. In the same way, on Memorial Day, we observe the lives of people who have given themselves. We don't just stop and remember, we carry that with us. It becomes a part of who we are when you've lost someone who's given so much. Jesus in his teaching says, I need you to also observe all my teachings. Not just obedience as a hearing to bureaucratic commands. Someone with tons of authority says do it, and it's like, all right, I guess we have to. But instead, it's about embodying and living out the teachings example in the model of Jesus. Jesus is not commanding them to create YouTube channels or teaching ministries. Thank God. For information transaction. Jesus is commanding them to train people into carrying around Jesus' lifestyle, both taught and modeled. Not just what we're supposed to know, but what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to treat people as we say those words. It's where Paul says, speak the truth in love. Not just to know that what's right, but to do it in the right way. Not just that our words would sound like Christ, but the tone and tenor that comes out from that and our disposition as we're saying them is also modeled like the life of Jesus. It's not all on us. One of my favorite things about following Jesus in this Christian life is I don't have to be in charge of it. And I shared with you last week, the invitation that was given uh, the, the, uh, when I came to Christ was this. Hey, some of you are trying to be in charge of your own life. You're trying to be kings of your own kingdom. And how's that going for you? Ugh. What I love about following Jesus is so little of it is about what I want and what I think. In fact, what I love is that almost all of it can't happen by my own efforts, and I'm challenged often when so much of it is. Question is, are we trusting Jesus as we follow him, making disciples out of all kinds of people, training them into a lifestyle, embodying and exuding the life of Jesus? Then Jesus gives us this, this affirmation that makes it possible in verse 20 he says and surely i'm with you always till the very ends of the age get it is it scary to go up to somebody you don't know and start breaching this conversation about jesus and brokenness in their life and what life's like without him and uh what what the what the death of sin feels like in their own world absolutely but guess what jesus didn't ask you to do it alone said, surely I'm going to be with you always. 
to the very ends of the age. He didn't ask you to go into your workplace uh, marching with tracks and blowing them out of a confetti cannon and just hoping somebody finds it and comes to the Lord. And I know people who have been blessed by tracks, so please don't hear me dismissing it. Right? But what I read from Jesus is when you walk up to that person and he's called you there and you know that you've got something to, to, to offer, you know that he's filled you to be poured out, and you know that there's emptiness that needs filled up. He's not leaving you. In fact, he's leading you there. He's with you as you go. And he's the one that's asking you to go in the first place. Not only will he never leave you or forsake you, he's got an invitation for you and a commission for you. And his assurance to you is that in this life of faith that he's always going to be with you. The challenge for us I'll say the challenge for me, maybe you're better people than I am, is I don't want to move my pivot foot. I'll, I'll, I'll go this far. But man, sometimes like, oh, I don't know what, uh, I don't know. I never, I didn't deal with that. I, I don't know what to say. I don't have the book of Romans memorized and I don't know how to dish that out. And I don't have these, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how I'm supposed to do it. And we're reminded, Jesus says, if you lift up that pivot foot, you can trust me with that one too. And then you can trust me with the next one. And then with the next one. And with the next one is following Jesus, is constantly trusting him that he will absolutely be with you to do everything he's called you to do. That so long as you are a branch connected to the vine, that Christ is living in you and through you and through him, and because of him only will you bear much fruit. And you'll see people around you come to Christ that you never would have, you, you didn't bother praying for them because you assumed it wouldn't happen. But that's the mission. Making disciples is not an option for the spiritually elite and the specially gifted. It is the natural impulse of someone who has been buried with Christ, has been risen, and is walking in their new life with Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Man, I hope that could be said of us. Maybe tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, there's new mercies. Today, you know, we'll get through it. Tomorrow morning, would we wake up and be able to say, it's the love of Christ that controls me? Because we've, been, we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You can't resurrect yourself. Some of you are trying. Some of you know you've burnt out trying. So your new life in Christ is not about you, but the one with whom you were raised. Verse 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation, he's a new creation. The old is gone and passed away, and behold, the new has come. Only in Christ is there a new creation that's possible for you. But only in Christ are you promised that it's going to happen. Uh, the old is gone, the new is here. And he says all of this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation, literally this life of serving to reconcile the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. We abide in Christ. So that what comes out of our lives is a ministry 
a way of serving the people around us, loving the people around us, showing forgiveness to the people around us, showing mercy to the people around us, that we are so filled with the Spirit in Jesus that we leak wherever we go and we fill up what's empty, not because of who we are, but because of the life of Christ that was resurrected in us and the Spirit that lives in us and through us. We abide in Christ so that what comes out of our lives is a ministry that brings people to an encounter with the reconciling God. I pray, and it's not always been the case, but God has given me fruit. And I look at some of that, and I can guarantee it has very little to do with my name and what I've done. But it's in those moments where I realize, man, this is what it looks like. And you know this. Some of you know this. You've, you've walked in this. This is what it looks like for my life to be surrendered to Christ. To see how God could use something as broken and messed up and not perfect and weird in times as this. To do something so beautiful as to watch someone in the relationship come into fellowship with Christ. To see his goodness and his mercy somehow through someone like me. Are you living in a way that people around you are drawing near to Jesus because of the fruit and intentionality of your own following of Jesus? Verse 20 says, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Do you get it? As a redeemed citizen of the kingdom of God living under the reign of King Jesus, we are also official representatives for Christ imploring the world around us to be reconciled to God. That is the way we serve people, is to help show them what renewal looks like in our own life, what God did with our death and brokenness, what he's done from our dirt and our ashes, and what life can look like when he sets it on fire, what it looks like when he breathes life into these dead nostrils and makes this come to life. He says, for our sake, for your sake, For my sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, there is a world around us that doesn't need our opinions, they need our Jesus. Maybe after service you need prayer because you've known Jesus' teaching, but you've not lifted your pivot foot. You haven't lived them out to the lost, broken people around you to help them see Jesus. Maybe, and I had to do this this week a couple times before I even invited you to do it, maybe you need to repent because you've been given so much knowledge, so much experience, and when much has been required, we've stayed put instead of going to follow Jesus to the next person. Some of you are stuck in the same spot Peter, Andrew, James, and John were when they were approached by Jesus working hard just to make it, looked over and passed over by so many, struggling on how, to, how separated your life has become from God. To you, you want the old gone and you want the new to come. And Paul reminds us that it was for our sake, meaning yours too, that he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to actually become sin for us So that in him, only through him, that a life like yours could even taste, let alone become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus' invitation was this. Come, turn away from where you are going and follow me. And I will make you someone who takes what you have to reach others around you and change maybe not the entire world, but you could be a part of God changing theirs. At the end of service, after we worship through this song, and this song is going to lead us in a prayer, through its lyrics, it's not just a song we'll sing because we like the melody, it's a song we sing because we need to proclaim it, we need to say it out loud because our words need to become actions and we need to do it. That we would actually make room for God to actually do whatever he wants to do. There's so much of us that need to go back up on the altar. Uh, whatever your pivot foot's stuck in, I'd ask you as we're singing this that you would evaluate that. And after service, some of you, I want to invite you. There'll be people up here praying. And I want to invite you to come have somebody put their hand on your shoulder and pray this truth over your life. That God made him who had no sin be sin for someone like you. That through him we would become the righteousness of God. And that if you would follow Jesus and be made to be fishers of men, that you would see that he's calling us to go and to give that away and help people follow Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did to the world around us. Because again, what they need is Jesus. Would you stand and pray? Heavenly Father, we, we bring ourselves back up on the altar as this living sacrifice, which you've told us is holy and pleasing to you. Some of us looked in the mirror this morning and wondered what in here could be that. But Father, because you said it's true, we're going to believe you. And God, that altar for us may just look like lifting our hands and surrender. It may look like getting on a knee. It, it may look like just turning our hearts over to you. It may look like uh, coming up and asking for prayer. But God, whatever it is, I pray that we don't leave here without being reminded that there is a commission, an invitation and a commission to follow you so that you could make us to be fishers of men, but that there's also this commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the identity and reputation and character in your name, the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, that we're to help teach them to carry out your life, to obey. And surely, Father, we do all this knowing that you are with us always till the very end of the age. Lord, would you have your way in our lives and our hearts so that we don't walk out of here the same way we walked in? Would you give us a burden for people broken, lost, hurting, disconnected from you, that you would use lives like ours to somehow be a part of your kingdom work as you do reconciling work in theirs. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.